Welcome to Connect Church. We're a new church in the East Windsor Heightstown area, and we're a church that is looking to connect to Jesus and community. We're so glad you've joined us. Back to the book of Zephaniah. We go some from some really exciting news um, to a book full with judgment and harsh language. So there we go. Um, so I recently started a new job. I work at a lumber company. And uh, I have a spiritual gift, and I think some of us do, where we see the faults in other people really quickly. I'm kidding. It's not actually a spiritual gift, um, although I bet some of us wish that it was because we're very good at seeing the faults in other people. And very quickly, I could be like, all right, this guy doesn't do anything. Um, this guy doesn't work as hard as me, and like, I'm very good at seeing the faults in other people. We redid these doors and we painted them, uh, and I noticed that as I went up on the forklift to paint the doors that were high, they all disappeared in different points to play games on their phone, and I very quickly became critical of all of them. But if we're honest, this reality exists in all of us. Um, there are people in our lives where we can often see the bad in them very quickly. Again, coworkers, family members, I'm sure there's somebody in your mind right now where you're like, yep, they drive me absolutely nuts. There's something funny about human nature where we are all experts at seeing the faults in other people. But as soon as that gets turned towards us, immediately our defenses go up and we say, don't you dare touch that. We could talk about your faults all day, but as soon as you begin to look at the things at me, uh, all right, let's change where we're going. And this is the scene of Zephaniah 2. Last week, we talked about Zephaniah 1, where God is talking about Israel and kind of the judgments that's coming their way. And in this chapter today, we're going to see how God shifts to all of the nations around there. And I think sometimes we read this and we're like, sweet, it's going to other people. That's awesome. But we're going to see at the end that God turns it back to Israel. And this is an important thing, again, I think, for us in an age where we are so critical of other people. We are so critical of people who don't think like us and act like us. And I think that this passage is written for us. Here's some context of Zephaniah 2. Again, there is probably no sentence that we all hate hearing more than I told you so. I tried to tell you, but you didn't listen. That phrase will get me torqued up super fast because it's bad enough that I'm dealing with the consequences of ignoring people and making a mistake, but now you told me I told you so, and I'm like, all right, let's cut this. But imagine if God says that to us. Imagine if God were the one who said, hey, I'm warning you that this is going to lead here, and you didn't listen. I told you so a little bit harder to hear. This isn't just the common, like, I didn't take the trash out and now it stinks. It's much deeper. And the first chapter of Zephaniah was God declaring the problem of complacency among his people. They were satisfied in their wealth and their possessions, and they got lulled into sleep. And they began to think that God wasn't active in the world. But now we're at a moment where the prophet is going to begin to plead with the people once again. And God is going to show them the need to repent. And this is a major theme throughout this book, again, is that our need to turn back towards God because everything, again, within us is so good at seeing the flaws in other people, but we're, we often have blinders on when it comes to our own life. And so with that, we begin in Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 4, and it says this, Gaza, 
and Ashkelon will be abandoned, Ashdod and Ekron torn down. And what sorrow awaits you Philistines who live along the coast and in the land of Canaan, for this judgment is against you too. The Lord will destroy you until not one of you is left. The Philistine coast will become a wilderness pasture, a place of shepherd camps and enclosures for sheep and goats. The remnant of the tribe of Judah will pasture there. They will rest at night in the abandoned houses in Eshkelon. For the Lord their God will visit his people in kindness and restore their prosperity again. Judgment is coming. And not just to the neighboring nations, but also to an unrepentant Judah. Yes, it's for the neighboring nations, but it's also going to be them. And I think we begin to see, right, the series is hope remains, and we're talking about judgment and death, and it's like, all right, where's the hope in it? And I think we begin to see it here. The Lord will visit his people in kindness, and he will restore their prosperity again. And even that word prosperity, it may not necessarily mean all their wealth will come back, but it means that God will dwell among them again. That God's very presence that may have disappeared through their decisions and their consequences, again, God is now present in this place again. God promises to be there. And this word remnant, I think, is also a very important word as well. A bunch of pastors that I listen to currently talk about this idea a lot, the American church has been shaken. And a lot of the people who were here when it was easy and comfortable are beginning to dwindle and disappear because it's not necessarily as easy to follow Jesus in our current climate. But this idea of remnant, the people who are left after they see who God is and they're reminded of who he is and their need for him. And so the, the people of Israel, the remnant, people who see their need to repent, the people who see their need for God, and they turn back towards him. And in it, God will be with them. And this idea of judgment and like speaking truth sometimes is a really difficult one. Right now, my daughter is two, and she's beginning the phase where she doesn't want to do anything that I listen or I tell her to, and then she lays down on the floor, and it's the end of the world. She often smashes her head on the floor and then cries more on because of that. We don't like to hear the things that we're not supposed to do. We just want to do whatever we want to. But for the remnant, the group of people who are willing to hear the correction of God, to hear the Holy Spirit's nudging and guiding in our lives, and instead of digging our heels in more, turning back to Jesus. And when we do that, God's promise is that he's among us. And that his very presence is abundant and prosperous. All right, with that, we continue in verse 8. It says this, I've heard the taunts of the Moabites and the insults of the Ammonites mocking my people and invading their borders. Now as surely as I live, says the Lord of heaven's army, the God of Israel, Moab and Ammon will be destroyed, destroyed as completely as Sodom and Gomorrah. Their land will become a place of stinging nettles, salt pits, and eternal desolation. The remnant of my people will plunder them and take their land. Again, that word, remnant. They will receive the wages of their pride, for they have scoffed at the people of the Lord of heaven's armies. The Lord will terrify them as he destroys all the gods in the land. The nations around the world will worship the Lord, each in their own land. 
And now we begin to see God's looking in different directions outside of Israel and naming all of the different nations around. And they all are due for not responding to who he is. And the comparison of Moab and Ammon to Sodom and Gomorrah to them would have stuck out because at that time, uh, Moab and Ammon were offspring of the relations of Lot's um, children. And so this is essentially the descendants of Sodom and Gomorrah. And even when we talk about this idea of repentance, it's interesting. Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed because there can't even be found five righteous people there. And in a moment, again, where well, who they are and, and their, their turning from God is called out, they still don't repent. And we see generations down, they're still due uh, an encounter and a judgment with God because nowhere did they change even though they saw it. And we often read these stories sometimes. And we think, like, this is a far-off, distant idea, but the reality is this lives in all of us. There are still things in my life that I knew that I, I need to work on as a teen, and they still exist in my heart today. Sodom and Gomorrah couldn't have seen, and, and the, the people who were there and heard of that story, it couldn't have been more clear of who God was and, and the need to live in holiness. And yet you see a couple generations down, and they create another land, and they live the same way. And again, one of the tensions in this passage is we're so quick to look at other people and see all the faults in them, but the reality is we often miss our own Sin and our own turning from God. Again, we begin to see a little bit of hope in this. That God will glorify himself among the nations. And he would do that by tearing down the idols and the things that people turn to. And he would show them that these idols are vain. And again, sometimes we read this and we go, God is so aggressive and mean. Why is that? And it's because he knows the only place that we find ultimate fulfillment and, and hope is in relationship with him. And yet in our own lives, we often turn to so many different things to try and be our satisfaction and our fulfillment, and we realize they don't last. If money and wealth is it, at some point you can have all the things you want, and then you realize you just have more things to take care of. If it's just in finding the right person, and once you do, everything is good, you'll realize that even though this person may be awesome to be with, they still drive you nuts sometimes. There are so many things that we look to, and these people are no different. And oftentimes we look at God's judgment and we think it's so harsh and it's so mean, but really what he's trying to do is to show us that the only place that we find true value and identity is in his presence. And the other side of God's judgment is often that it's not necessarily him being harsh, but him just stepping back and giving us what we desire all along. And for us today, if God gave us over to our desires and the things that exist in our hearts, what would our life look like? Would we genuinely be moving closer to God? Or would we be moving further? Would we be maybe harming the people around us that we care about? And this is why God deals with these things. There's a lot on the line. But most of all, the name of God matters. And who he is is important. 
And so he searches among his people because he's looking for a group of people who would commit to living to him fully. But again, the remnant will plunder and take the land. The remnant will have all that they need. And this week I was really wrestling, all right, like, what does this look like for us? Because we're not going to see God's judgment on other people by, like, war and things happening like that at this point. That we're, even though we're in the midst of a little bit of tension globally, right, we don't often sit back and hope that God wipes out other nations and that it's his judgment. So what does it look like? And the tension of this is, and I think the frustrating part for me, being the remnant often doesn't mean life looks better. And I think some of like the biggest like wrestling points I have with God over the last few years is like, I'm trying to do this right. Why is my life so difficult? And I think we often look to worldly standards for God to fulfill this, but it's much deeper than that. And so for you today, even maybe you would identify as the remnant and you're following God and you're doing all that you can to and you feel this tension of like, my neighbor who doesn't know God at all has all the money and things that he could ever want. Why isn't my life like that? And I would tell you, I think you're exactly where you need to be. You're fully known by a God who loves you so much that we read from the beginning of a story, he created us in, it, in his image to be with him. And there's a day where we'll stand before him again and that image will be fully known once again. And that's the beauty of the story. Being part of the remnant of the people who live fully for this, of being willing to see the areas in our life that are difficult and we might want to overlook, it's worth it. Because it brings us closer to a God who fully loves us. Verse 12 gets a little bit better. We read, you Ethiopians will be slaughtered by my sword, says the Lord. And it's very interesting, again, that, that Zephaniah is taking the time to point out all of the nations around. And I think it's a reminder for us, again, God sees everyone. He sees all that's happening. And for us, again, maybe we're wrestling with that idea of, like, why is my neighbor's life so good? Mine seems so difficult. I'm trying to follow God. They're not. God sees. And we often use this language of, like, do we trust the story? Do we trust that the sacrifice that I make on this side of eternity is worth it the one day when I'm with Jesus fully once again? And that tension often comes to the surface. Do I trust this story fully? We continue in verse 13. The Lord will strike the lands of the north with his fist, destroying the land of Assyria. He will make its great capital, Nineveh, a desolate wasteland parched like a desert. The proud city will become a pasture for flocks and herds, and all sorts of wild animals will settle there. The desert owl and screech owl will roost on its ruined columns, their calls echoing through the gaping windows. Rubble will block the doorways. The cedar paneling will be exposed, exposed to the weather. This is the boisterous city, once so secure, I am the greatest, it boasted. No other city can compare with me. But now look how it has become an utter ruin, a haven for wild animals. Everyone passing by will laugh in derision and shake a defiant fist. 
God completes the cycle of judgment against Israel's neighbor by looking at Assyria. At that time, Assyria was a great nation. The capital city of Nineveh, this was a place, again, that people would look to and they would want to be. Nineveh felt strong and confident, but God said that he would bring them low. And I think we see this principle later in the New Testament in James when we read, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The nation of Assyria, sure, God was calling. He was standing at the door and knocking, and yet they were too prideful in their own money and possessions and power to hear the voice of God. And for us, again, this is a sobering reminder. Do we hear the voice of God? Do we feel his stirring in our lives? Or do we trust in our own abilities? And with that, we jump to the beginning of chapter 3, and it says this. What sorrow awaits rebellious, polluted Jerusalem, the city of violence and crime? No one can tell it anything. It refuses correction. It does not trust in the Lord or draw near to its God. Its leaders are like roaring lions hunting for their victims. Its judges are like ravenous wolves at evening time, who by dawn have left no trace of their prey. Its prophets are arrogant liars seeking their own gain. Its priests defile the temple by disobeying God's instructions. And you have to think the nation of Israel, as they're hearing Zephaniah speak in chapter 2, they're going, yeah, that destroy all those other nations. Take care of them. Give us the land that you promised. And now the beginning of chapter 3 gets a little tense for them because God turns it back towards them again. From the way Zephaniah 2 ends, they were hoping that the oppressing city is Nineveh and that they would get what they deserve. But now we hear that Jerusalem was actually the oppressing city. Again, how often do we see ourselves as the holy and the righteous ones? Ones who know everything, who can do no wrong, and yet when God looks at our hearts, he sees the opposite. And in repeating these four phrases, the prophet tells us the root of Jerusalem's sin. And these are the four, and I would encourage you this week to search your heart and see. The first one is, is that God called, but they didn't listen. God called, and they didn't listen. And for us today, some things to wrestle with that tension, like one, when is the last time you may have heard the voice of God nudging you and to move? Maybe to take a step towards obedience towards him. Because Jesus says that his sheep will know his voice. If I am a follower of Jesus, I know the voice of God. And I'll say it's not always an easy process to figure it out. And sometimes you may think it's God speaking and you step that way and it's not. That's okay. We need to learn the voice of God. But do we listen when God calls us? The second thing that they do is they refuse correction. Plain and simply, this is pride. I know better. And yeah, sometimes, right, it's easy to say that among people of like someone asks us to do something and you're like, no, I know better than them, but, but this is God speaking. 
And yet the reality is so many of us oftentimes confessionally say we trust God and believe him. And then yet functionally, when it comes down to it, I live my life like I know better than he does. Correction came, but they didn't hear it. The third thing is that they didn't trust God. And if you know anything about Israel's history, God never did anything that would make them not trust him. And if you look back at it, he freed them from slavery. He parted a sea. He gave them food from heaven. He continually revealed himself to them, and yet they continued to forget who God was. And in their forgetting, they come to a place where they openly deny who he is and live in contradiction to his word. Again, today, do we trust the story? So much so that we are willing to sacrifice to be obedient to it. And the fourth thing is that they didn't draw near to God. And I think this is their worst offense. God longs for relationship with his people. We read that in Genesis 1, that's the story. That we were created to know God and be known fully by him. God wanted to know his people, and yet they rejected it. For us today, do we draw near to God? Do we have patterns and habits and people in our lives that help us draw near to him? If you stripped away all of the noise and and busyness of your day and you genuinely searched your heart, what would your desires say? Do you desire God and his kingdom? Or do you desire your own kingdom? One last portion here. Verse 5 in chapter 3 says this, But the Lord is still there in the city, and he does no wrong. Day by day he hands down justice, and he does not fail. But the wicked know no shame. I have wiped out many nations, devastating their fortress walls and towers. Their streets are now deserted. Their cities lie in silent ruin. There are no survivors, none at all. I thought, surely they will have reverence for me now. Surely they will listen to my warnings. Then I won't need to strike again, destroying their homes. But no, they get up early to continue their evil deeds. Therefore, be patient, says the Lord. Soon I will stand and accuse these evil nations. For I have decided to gather the kingdoms of the earth and pour out my fiercest anger and fury at them. All the earth will be devoured by the fire of my jealousy. God desires righteousness. And this idea of fire throughout Scripture is often an idea of refining. And it's in the fire where we see metals are made more pure. It's the same thing that's true for us. As we encounter God and who he is, the fire brings out of us holiness. It brings out of us a life that looks more like God. God is going to bring his justice because his name is on the line. But the beauty of it is, and it's the way that this passage begins, the Lord is still there in the city. And we often take this idea of God's judgment as an idea meaning he has given up and he doesn't care and and it's harsh, but God is still there in the city calling us back to him. 
And so for us today, I don't know what our lives and what our story of faith might look like, but God is calling us back to him. And so just some application out of the story and what it looks like, again, it's our need to repent. The first message in this passage is repentance. If you don't, the word repent simply means to turn and turn towards. I'm turning from the things that bring me further away from God, and I'm turning more, and I'm turning back towards God. And I'm submitting my life to him. And this is God's warning to his people. You're so excited about seeing these other nations destroyed by my judgment, and yet you're no different than them. It's easy to see the fault in other people, and yet you make the same decisions that bring you further away from me. When we hear a natural disaster is coming, more so maybe not here as much, although when Sandy hit in the early 2000s, A lot of people are like, ah, hurricanes never hit New Jersey like that, and then they were trapped. And there's often two different responses to that when we know it's coming. Some people are like, ah, it's not going to be that bad, I'm good, and then it hits, and they're like, probably should have taken that seriously. And then there are some who, like, heed the warning, and they get out, and even sometimes the storm is a dud, but they took the steps to be safe. We often know that we are responsible for the decisions that we make, And yet we often live our life in the same way that we respond to natural disasters that are impending. Some of us take it seriously. We repent and we make sure that we're in a posture of humility where we can hear and sense the leading of God still. Others of us just keep blowing through, going, eh, whatever happens, happens. Today, this is one of those moments where maybe God is trying to get your attention and say repentance matters. The decisions and the things that you're doing may be bringing yourself further from knowing and being in relationship with God. And today is an opportunity to maybe pause and think and turn back to who he is. In chapter 1, again, we noted that they were following the commands of God but they weren't seeking him. And you might hear that and you'd be like, well, what's the difference? But one is an external thing. The second is heart change. It's the depth of who I am submitted to obedience in God. And today we need to hear this message. You can do the commands of God and you can still experience his wrath. And Jesus in the New Testament says one of the scariest things to me in the entire Bible, and it's this, of people standing before God and him saying, you did all these incredible works in my name, and yet I don't know you. And it's the same idea here. We can do all the outward things right, but if God doesn't have our heart, And again, today, this may be a moment. I've been playing church for a long time, been sitting in the seats. I may even be serving. I'm good. I'm baptized. I participate in worship. I keep the laws of God. And yet, if I'm honest, I'm missing the heart of God, dwelling in relationship with 
do we genuinely seek God? And I'm not talking about like we get bad news and so we turn to God and we pray because the only means we have to solve this problem is God. But do we desire him? Do we seek his kingdom first? And when we don't, that's where repentance comes in. And this is a really difficult tension to wrestle with. Do I genuinely, wholeheartedly desire God? Or am I looking at him as a means to an end? Do I even sometimes just look at the church as like a group of people who are nice to me, and so I come there because everyone else is mean, but there they're nice? And in the moments where we find we desire things more than God, that's where we repent and we turn towards him. And then we repent because at the end of the day, we realize that we're no different than the world. And I think that's the heart of this passage here. Israel's so quick to look at the surrounding nations and be like, look at all of the things that they're doing, and then God turns it back to them. And again, if we read Zephaniah 2, verse 15, it says, this is the boisterous city, once so secure. I am the greatest, it boasted. No other city can compare with me. But now look how it has become an utter ruin, a haven for wild animals. Everyone passing by will laugh in derision and shake a defiant fist. Again, notice the arrogance. No one can bring them down. No one is like them. They'll exist forever. They're great. And they don't need God. And the fascinating thing about this passage here is that they actually quote something from Isaiah 45 in the way that God talks about himself. And there it says, the Lord said about himself that he is the only God and there is no one beside him. Nineveh is essentially taking that and mocking God. Look at how great I am. And if we're honest, we often live this way. I know better than God. Yeah, God says this, but if I live this way, I think it's better. And it was not only Nineveh, but Judah does not listen, and they don't accept correction either. They don't trust God. They don't draw near to him. Their leaders are violent. Their teachers use the law for gain. The people are nothing like the God whom they're following and imitating. Sometimes we read passages like these and we think this is so harsh sounding. But if we're honest, this reality exists in all of us. And not only that, I think this reality exists in our Western American church a lot. And as people look at the church and they have so many issues with the capital C church across the board, And we get so good at our schemes and things that we do. Do we genuinely trust the gospel? Are we violent? And yeah, obviously we're not going out and taking a sword and killing somebody. But I think in our modern context, we are so harsh with our words and our actions towards people who don't line up with us. The teachers use the law for gain. People have used the gospel for centuries to oppress people and get what they want. Judah is no different than the world. 
today does that exist in our hearts? Do we listen to correction? Are we prideful? Do we use the gospel for gain? Are we violent? Again, maybe not killing people, at least I hope not, but with your words and actions. But this is where hope remains in the passage. God hopes in the midst of this that we'll respond to him. God says, my judgment upon other nations is so that you would see who I am and you would turn back to me. When I came to you about correction, I thought that you would listen. You're my people. You didn't. But now I'm showing you what my judgment looks like on other people so that you would turn back to me. And this is the problem that exists in humanity that was noted in people's response to Jesus. In John 3, we read this. The judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world. But people love darkness more than light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it, for their sins will be exposed. This tension exists in all of us. And and if we're honest, our lives are no different than what we see in Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 in the fall. When we make decisions that bring us further from God, the first thing that we do, just like them, is we hide. And we do everything that we can to cover up our mistakes, and we hope that nobody will ever see them. But today, the beauty of the gospel is this. God sees our mistakes. We can't hide them. And his voice is there. He's in the city calling us back to him. And this is the great hope that we have that we may make a mess out of our lives, we may make decisions every day that hurt people around us, but more so bring us further from God and his kingdom, and yet he is still in the city calling us back to him. And he's saying, all of these things that you hide and you think bring shame and guilt to your life, if you would only bring them to me, there's hope and forgiveness. God's kingdom is so different than ours the things that we think we need to bury and hide and be ashamed of, God says, I forgive them and give you a new start. But we have to wrestle with this tension. Where in our lives do we desire our own kingdom over the kingdom of God? And if we're brutally honest with ourselves, we'll see that this tension exists a lot more than we would like to admit we'll see that in our heart we desire the things of this world often a lot more than we desire the kingdom of God. And so today as we close again, I don't know where you are in your journey of following Jesus, but the good news of the gospel is this. The things that we hide, the things that bring us shame, the things that maybe keep us up at night where if somebody only knew what I was doing or capable of, the thoughts in my head, that's exactly the place where the grace of Jesus meets us. That's exactly the place where his death and his resurrection comes and says, you are my child. I'm bringing you back into relationship with me once again. And for us, all it takes is a surrendering 
and a posture of humility to say, God, you're right. I've made a mess of this. But today I'm willing to look to the depths of my heart and to say that your way might be better than mine. That you're the God who was proactive, who came to us, who lived life on this earth, and yet was willing to lay his life down for us. Today it's a beautiful exchange. For those of us who do follow Jesus, just some things to think about this week. Would we not be prideful when we look at other people's lives? This whole thing of being critical of other people, of tearing people down, of seeing the flaws in them, it couldn't be more counter-gospel. Repentance requires humility. Today, if our hearts are full of pride, man, it is hard for God to work and move. Our hearts are humble and in a posture to receive from God. I believe that he'll speak and he'll move. Jesus said in Matthew 5 that those who were poor in spirit are blessed for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. We think we're always right. We think we're above correction. We don't listen when people are trying to help us and guide us. We may be missing the heart of God. The second thing, again, for us, just to search our hearts, is what areas of our life are we living out of what we want in our own kingdom? And what steps, maybe this week, do we need to take in obedience to allow the kingdom of God at work in our hearts? I want to close with this idea of what I think this idea of grief and repentance looks like. Paul speaks of two kinds of grief in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. There's godly grief and there's worldly grief, or godly repentance and worldly repentance. There's grief that leads to repentance. Like I I examine my heart and I see the pain and, and the destruction that desiring my own kingdom over God's has done. And so because of that, I know I need to turn somewhere. But Paul states that how you grieve will affect how you repent. Worldly repentance or worldly grief often looks like this. It's selfish. I'm repenting because there's consequence and it's not genuine repentance. It's I made a mistake and there's this consequence here and so I'm just gonna say sorry to avoid the consequences and hope that they go away. Really, I'm just concerned about the effect of this decision on me. I'm concerned about my own self-interest and so I will repent to protect myself. Worldly grief, worldly repentance is also often self-righteous. By repenting, I am trying to earn my righteousness. 
And I continually like walk through this process and feel horrible about myself because if I just beat myself down enough, then I'll feel like I have a hand in my own salvation. And today, again, our salvation comes in what Jesus did. And then worldly, worldly repentance is often destructive. It brings death. It often brings, again, judgment instead of repentance. I'm so worried about what other people are doing than I am myself. But then godly grief brings us to godly repentance. And this is where I'm more concerned about how I've harmed my relationship with God and how my decision has separated me from him because I know that it's relationship with him that brings everything. And so instead of seeing consequences like externally, I realize that I am separated from the God who brings fullness to my life. And so the grief is, God, I am sorry that I've wandered from your path. I'm sorry that I've lived for my own kingdom today over yours. And godly repentance is humble. And it realizes that by walking through this process of repentance, it's not about saving myself. It's not about the attention that it brings on me, but it's about pointing to somebody greater. God made a mess out of this. And I know there's nothing that I can do to fix it. But I know that there's a God who can. And sometimes, yeah, I still walk in the consequences of the decision that I make. And yet I know that it's a new day and I am forgiven fully. Again, when we repent, what's our posture? If this whole passage could be boiled down to one thought, I think it's this. Look around you. This is life without me. You're my people and I'm calling you to me and I'm saying draw near to me and hear me and you're choosing not to. Look around you. Look at the nations and the things that are happening to them. Do you want this to be you? Turn back. And for us today, the people that we compare ourselves to who may be following God or not, right? I often am envious of my neighbors and the nice cars that they have, and yet they have an emptiness I don't have. And when I strip away like what the world says my life should be versus what God does, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I think this is what God is calling a remnant of people who understand that and know that and they're okay and willing to live in obedience and surrender to God. And every moment we begin to look externally to what the world says is success and the measure of things that we want and will bring happiness. We see the people around us who are there and they don't have it. Turn our heart back towards God and we say, Jesus, thank you that you're all that I need. Hope remains. Because in the midst of it all, God is still in the city calling us back to him. In the midst of chaos, God is still there trying to get our attention and say, listen, draw near to me. And so for us today as a church, would that be us? 
God calls, would we listen? And God sends people along our path to point out things in our life that may be drawing us further from the kingdom of God, we listen. Would we be a people of humility and love for God? And so today, just a moment to respond. We'll have some of our our prayer team up here. We would love to pray with you today. Maybe something in the message is just stirring your heart and you feel like God is speaking to you. We would love to pray with you along that. If you came in and there's just a need in your life and maybe you're sick or there's something going on, we would love to pray with you as well. Um, But if neither of those things are going on, again, our team is going to lead us in a song. And so just want to invite you to stand as we respond today. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this encourages you to take your next steps in your faith journey with God. You can check us out more on connectchurchnj.com. Have a great day.